Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, guest speaker Caleb Hunt is continuing a series on John, where Jesus closes his time with his disciples in prayer. He prays for unity, and in his prayer, he describes what unity means. First, unity is from God and for his glory. Second, unity is found in Jesus with community. And third, unity is an invitation to the world. How is God calling you to come and more fully belong to himself and to the church? After the message, you're invited to answer some application questions, which you can find on our website right under the worship service video. Now, here's today's teaching. My name is Mark Curtis. I'm the director of operations here, so I just extend my greeting to you. So glad you're all here and watching online. Uh, We are wrapping up five, six weeks now of guest preaching, which has just been tremendous. Pastor Josh has been on sabbatical. He'll be back next Sunday. But Caleb Hunt is finishing strong for us. We've had just a great time, and Caleb is uh, continuing on in John 17 for us. So Caleb is one of our ministry partners. He works with college students here on the OSU campus. His wife, Christina, grew up in Northwest Hills, and uh, so he's going to share the message with us this morning. So greet him warmly. All right, thank you. All right. Good morning, Northwest Hills. It is a joy to be together with you this morning. Um, Josh asked me if I'd be willing to preach again, to which I said I'd be honored. Um, And then I said, you know, can you give me something easy to preach on? And he said, um, no, you're going to have a passage on unity during one of the most divisive times ever. And I said, awesome, have a wonderful sabbatical. And... um, (laughs) So Josh will be conveniently back next week, but uh, today we're going to pick it up where we left off in John, in chapter 17, and we're going to jump straight into the deep end today, so I encourage you to get that in front of you. Um, If you do not have a Bible, you can check back by the Connect desk, and they will get you set up. Um, But just by way of introduction, uh, throughout John's gospel, his primary concern has been to demonstrate who Jesus is, right? If you remember from last week, John reveals his purpose in writing... In chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, when he says that he writes these things so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. So John's primary goal is to help his readers see that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's answering this question, who is Jesus? But it's not just a fact that John's trying to convey, like the sky is blue or water is wet. He's not just trying to deliver information about God. He wants us to see Jesus as he sees Jesus. He wants us to know Jesus as he knows Jesus. And so in addressing this question, uh, who is Jesus, he needs to answer a question that's underneath that question, and that is, what is on his heart? So if you know what's what's been coming down the pike through, we know that he's building toward the cross. The next chapter we're going to see, Jesus is moving toward the cross. But for the last several chapters, he's been teaching his disciples a number of important things, the last things that he has to teach them. And he's been teaching them about who his identity is and about abiding in him and about loving one another and about uh, the Holy Spirit who is to come and fill them and empower them to live for him. And so that's the context coming into this prayer. We have that sermon series and then the cross in front of him and The question is, how does Jesus close that sermon series in prayer? Right? What better way to understand someone's heart than through their prayer? John gives us the gift of seeing one of the most intimate prayers that's recorded in the Bible. 
Um, this is sometimes called the high priestly prayer or just the prayer of Jesus. It's the last words that John records of Jesus before he gets arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. And so what is on his heart? This passage is usually summarized in one word. I've already given it to you, right? But similar to 1 Corinthians 13, it's often used in weddings. It can be summarized in one word. It's the passage of love. And so if you're familiar with this passage, right? I've already given it to you. What's the one word that summarizes it? Somebody say it with me. Unity. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I'm giving you the answer before we do the problem together. What's on Jesus's heart? Unity. Oh, we see why we need this sermon. Okay. Um, So in his prayer, we don't just see that Jesus cares about unity. We can actually see what unity means according to Jesus. Because I think people generally like the idea of unity, um, but we can have different ideas about how do you even have unity and and what it means. But through this prayer, we're going to learn three things about unity that reflect Jesus's heart. Okay, so that's our outline for today. So we're going to start in chapter 17, verse 1. With his disciples surrounding him, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, so note takers. Note takers are my people. Ready? Point number one about unity. Unity is from God and for his glory. Okay, unity is from God and for his glory. The first thing that Jesus prays is for himself and the Father to be glorified. That's his starting point that we're going to see now overflows into everything else that now follows. Because you can't talk about unity without talking about the Trinity. That's literally what it means. Try unity. And so what we see here is Jesus's words are harking all the way back to John chapter one, that Jesus is eternal, that he was with the Father in the beginning and the Holy Spirit before creation began, and that they are one. And so oneness does not mean sameness. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are not the same person. They are, in fact, very different from one another. And I think this shows up in our prayers that we can sometimes forget this, right? Father, thank you for this day, Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, thank you for for your love and for dying on the cross for my sins. Holy Spirit, we invite you here, and it's in your name we pray. Raise your hand if you've ever prayed a prayer like that. Raise your hand if you've heard your neighbor pray like that. Wait, I'm just kidding. Um, but see, so what I think is funny is that you want a God you can fully understand. Some people think that the Trinity um, is funny. Right? But Jesus is not the Father. He's not the Son. He's not the Spirit. It's difficult for us to understand. Maybe you've seen that meme, right, that shows Jesus praying and says, Are you there, God? It's me, you. But see, I think it's funny you want a God you can fully understand. If you could fully wrap your mind around God, that would have to make you God. But see, through this prayer, we can actually see Jesus' relationship with the Father is perhaps the most important reason that Christianity can claim to believe in a God of love. Because in a state of eternity, if God were only one person, there would be no one else for him to love. Before there was another soul created, God would truly be alone, isolated. We could even say he was 
lacking something that he created because he needed something or he, he was lonely. But not so with the Trinity. Before creation began, God was experiencing perfect love within three persons, mutually giving themselves to one another and glorifying one another. One's, oneness is intrinsic to God's nature. And so here's our working definition of unity. Are you ready? A oneness that exists in diversity. Oneness is not sameness. Ask anyone who's been married for longer than five minutes if they are now the same. They will laugh in your face, right? But the Bible declares they are one. And so if God is three persons who aren't the same and are giving themselves to and glorifying one another, we can truly say God is love. So in God's love, we see what unity is, a giving of oneself to another that leads to oneness. Oneness that's from God, that exists in diversity, and that is ultimately for his glory. Point number two, note takers, unity is found in Jesus with community. Unity is found in Jesus with community. Let's pick it up in verse six. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. So we see that within the the Trinity, God's love and his glory actually cannot be contained, but it overflows. God didn't create because he lacked something, quite the opposite. He creates out of an abundance of love, which flows into this love and life-giving act of creation. And he breathes life into his creation, not just a biological existence, but the definition of life. He himself is life, and therefore all who belong to him, he says, have life. See, John is sharing Jesus' prayer, not not only because he wants to help us see how we ought to become a Christian and how we can become a Christian, but what it means to be a Christian. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. They know in truth that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. And so Jesus is making an important distinction here between the world and his followers. And if you didn't grow up in the church, right, if you're new here, if you're exploring faith, that may sound strange, right? Uh, When Jesus uses the word world here, he doesn't mean the earth. What he means is the system of the earth that is hostile to God. And we know that God loves the world. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses ever. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus loves the world and he came for the world. But what we see here is he's praying here not for the world, but for his disciples. And so there is a special love, an intimacy, a joy, a peace, a blessing, and belonging that isn't for the world, but for those who know him. And even though that access is available to all, it's not experienced by all. But he's he's not saying that his disciples are superior to the world. They're, They're better than, only they've been called out of it to someone better. And he says, they have kept your word. On the surface, I think that could sound like the disciples have been obedient, that they've kept all of Jesus' commands. But that seems kind of laughable at this point, since at the end of the last chapter, he said the opposite. They were about to be scattered to each go their own way and to leave him alone. They have been struggling. 
So it doesn't make sense that, that Jesus means they have perfectly kept his commands. When he says that he, they have kept his word, he says they have accepted the truth, that he was sent from God, and that he is the way to eternal life. See, eternal life, it's not just about a mediocre life that happens to just go on forever. It's the most abundant life, the most meaningful, fulfilling life we could possibly have because it was what we were created for, personally knowing the one who is eternal, who is united and then overflows out of that self-giving love and glory and makes a way for us to be invited into that same unity. Peter is a disciple I can relate with. He struggles over and over. He's often stubborn, hard-headed. Right? Remember in chapter 6, though, when many chose to stop following Jesus because he didn't fit into their expectations, it was Peter who said, but Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we see Jesus' heart here for those who belong to him. He doesn't call perfect people, but people who understand they need him. This is what we call the good news. Jesus didn't call the righteous, but sinners. He doesn't ask that we first change and be better in order that we can come to him, but he instead chose to come to us in order that he might make us better. See, there's a big misconception in our culture, and I think even in the church, that the church should look perfect, that everyone in the church should look a lot better than those outside of it, that religion is about a system of morality. And so when we see a Christian doing, we all know they ought not, doing something they ought not do, we some take it as proof that religion is just another failed system. That any time a Christian shows themselves to be flawed, that somehow that's evidence God isn't real. But Christianity at its core, it's not a system of moral laws, but it is a personal relationship with the only one who has kept those laws and can keep those laws perfectly. And he is the only one capable of also transforming our hearts and breathing life into every part of my heart that is dead and broken. See, what that view doesn't take into account is that Jesus gathers the broken. Peter has been walking with Jesus for three years, and not only is he still as stubborn as they come, but he is about to deny Jesus vehemently in the next chapter. In modern terms, it's been said this way, that church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Jesus gathers the broken. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this isn't a new concept. God has always been about gathering a people to himself and then dwelling among that people. And no matter how stubborn, how hard-headed, how stiff-necked and broken they are, he continues over and over to show them grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion. And at the same time, he continually calls them to walk with him so that they would know him and that by knowing him, they would be made better. So what Jesus is saying is, what sets my people apart from the world is not that they are better than, it's not that they are perfect. What sets them apart is that they've been called out of the world and to me. Unity is found in Jesus. But that doesn't mean he's satisfied to leave us how he found us. Even for Peter, we know that's not the end of his story. We can continue in verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So although the church is not perfect, what we see is that it's continually being 
transformed, sanctified, made more and more holy, and therefore as a whole, it will stand out from the world. Otherwise, the world would not hate it. Jesus says that if we come to him, we will be transformed. We will be made better. And that the way that we are transformed is by the truth of his word. And this is also why we need one another, right? None of us has a monopoly on truth. I am not the truth and you are not the truth. Jesus is the truth. And so if I know Jesus and you know Jesus, and last week we, we, know, we learned that if we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we will continue to each be molded and shaped and sanctified by the truth. Which means there are things that Jesus has done in my life that can speak into yours. And there are things that he's done in your life that can speak into mine. See, unity must have a center. Much like the solar system, it works in harmony only when all of the different planets revolve around the same thing. If the planet suddenly chose to orbit around themselves or each other or not orbit around anything in particular, the result would be chaos. The solar system would fall apart and die. And if you're building your center around anything that's not God himself, Jesus says, it's going to fail you. Real, true, abundant, and eternal life is only found in him. And so he is also the key to unity. That's why in the book of Acts, the unity of the early church was a brand new concept that all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, class, age, gender, people literally from all over the known world could for the first time be in history be unified, not only as equals, but as a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-gender, multi-generational family, a multi of multis because they had Jesus in common. Unity is found in Jesus, but it's not found in isolation. To be in Jesus means to be with others, with his family, being sanctified in truth. Point number three, note takers, unity is an invitation to the world. In verse 18, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Remember in verse 16, he says, they are not of this world. And in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why else would Jesus want us protected unless he wanted us to remain in a dangerous place? Some of you have heard this phrase before, right? N-O-T-W, not of this world. It's inspired a lot of t-shirts, clothing brands, and bumper stickers, right? But if we're to be faithful to this text in Jesus' prayer, we should have another bumper sticker to go with that one. S-I-T-W still in this world. See, the Christian's job is not to be confused with the world because Jesus has called us out of it and he's prayed for us to stand out from it. But in in trying to not be confused with the world, I think the temptation is to withdraw from the world. But Jesus doesn't ask for us to be withdrawn. We have another preposition. He's called us out from the world so we can be for it. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. Did you catch this? Jesus literally, right here, prayed for you and me, for those who will believe. And so here's Jesus' heart, that though the world hated him, he loved it to the end. Those disciples would all leave him when he needed the most. He still loved them to the end. And now he sends them back into the world to love it to the end. So that even more people may be brought into that unity and that love that began with the Trinity. 
The world thinks of unity this way. I am for you as long as you are with me. I am for you as long as you agree with me. I think there's a lie that's prevalent in our culture that if you love someone, you can never tell them that there is a better way, especially if it's an emotional subject. Let me tell you something. I love my kids a lot, but I happen to disagree with them a lot. And it's usually over something they have a lot of emotional investment in, like believing eating a pound of candy is going to be a good idea. And the loving thing to do is to say, that's a terrible idea. So contrary to the belief that unity can be found only with those who agree with you, unity means inviting others in, letting them challenge you. And Jesus shows us that true unity is the kind that says, though we're different, though we may disagree, though you are not perfect, and though you may not always be for me, I am for you. And what Jesus shows us is we don't need to agree on the same things to have unity, only the most important things, the truths about himself and how we live as a result. And that's the test of unity. Can we stay united when other differences come between us? Because our love for one another and our unity will be what demonstrates to the world that Jesus is truth. That's what he's saying. He says, they may all be one, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us. So if we are to reflect the oneness of the Trinity, then we must also prefer those who are different from us. See, oneness is not merely about equality. Equality by itself is affirming other people as having equal value, worth, and dignity. But oneness goes a step further because it's not only about affirming someone's worth, but affirming their presence, preferring to be with them. When they weep, we weep. When they rejoice, we rejoice. We have many differences that can become breaking points in our relationships, right? We have differences of opinion, maybe some theological differences, We have differences from our lived experiences, from our genders, from our ethnic and cultural backgrounds, from our generational differences, from our different strengths and weaknesses, from our personalities, from our political standpoints, from our different values, interests, and from our preferences. And we might even describe those differences in terms of kingdoms, right? The kingdom of the beavers or the kingdom of the ducks? The kingdoms of KJV, NIV, ESV, NLT, or the message? Kingdoms of worship with stringed instruments and worship with no instruments. Kingdoms of red and blue, of donkeys and elephants. And of course, the kingdoms we make for ourselves, kingdoms of personal freedom, personal comfort, and personal glory. And Jesus is saying, it's well and good to participate in various kingdoms in the world, but the temptations to make any of those kingdoms primary. But here's Jesus, the king of kings, praying for us to make his kingdom primary primary because in order to have unity with those in any other kingdom we need to have a common king who is above all the most community and the deepest unity that i have felt is actually where it seemed the least likely when serving overseas we were working together with other missionaries from japan singapore china taiwan hong kong korea the uk the u.s and canada and we were as different and had different backgrounds as you could possibly imagine One of my bosses was the son of missionaries. Another of my bosses was the son of a prostitute. Very different backgrounds and life experiences. Some of us liked to pray out loud all together at 4 a.m. Others liked to pray alone in silence at noon. We had different worship styles, different prayer styles, different political views, different cultural values and norms, different languages that we spoke, and different expectations for how to show respect, how to run meetings, how to raise and educate our children, how to vote, how to do church on Sundays, how to spend our free time, and even which restaurants we could all agree to eat at together. 
But when we were all in one room worshiping and praying together, you can bet that none of those things mattered. The king and his mission were too great for us to get bogged down by those things. Actually, our unity shined brighter because of those differences. People who could barely understand each other were lamenting together and weeping together as we prayed for the brokenness in our city. So the king and his kingdom are too great for me to make other things primary. And, and here's how you know that God's kingdom is primary in your life, right? It is if it informs and transforms the other kingdoms in your life and not the other way around. When my personal or political views are challenged by God's word, do I allow those views to distort how I understand the word or do I let the word transform what's distorted about my views? When I am tempted to put my own comfort and glory and freedom first, do I allow these things to get in the way of God's kingdom or do I allow God's kingdom to get in my way? Only one of those can win. One leads to glorifying myself and one leads to glorifying God through building unity with others. See, the world offers an idea of unity that's ultimately fake, like a man proposing with a fake diamond ring. Right? It's not a real ring. And... Uh, one method that's used to test the difference between a real and a false diamond is to expose it to fire. When heat is applied, the false diamond crumbles. You can easily see the difference between true and false unity. One crumbles under even the slightest of disagreements, and one is real, because it doesn't require everyone become the same, but that they be one. And that in those differences, they give greater glory to God, because what could have been a cause for division only serves to magnify the one truth that has unified them the one who is truth. And how beautiful it is when people of different tribes, languages, cultures, and tongues, and yes, even political views, can all come together with different voices to sing the praises of the one that has unified them in himself. Jesus is saying that's the kind of unity that attracts others to also come and belong. And he closes his prayer in verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And now Jesus' prayer comes full circle. Right? The love that the Father has had for the Son since the beginning, he extends to now those who are in Jesus. And the unity that God has in himself overflows into an invitation for us into that same unity. A unity that's not about sameness, but oneness and a oneness which is magnified by our differences as we work together to glorify the one at the center. And a oneness which leads to loving one another just as the Father has loved the Son for eternity. Unity is from God, in Jesus, with one another, inviting the world for his glory. So I'll leave you with this verse. Ephesians 4.3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Much like a precious diamond, our unity is something to be preserved and treasured. And like a diamond, we must also continue to be formed ourselves by enduring the heat and friction of being in each other's lives. And only then will we reflect his glory to the world by looking different from the world in the most beautiful of ways. And that's when the world will be attracted to the purity and strength of our unity and come and belong. And if you have not made that decision to come and belong to Jesus, I just want to invite you to consider that today. Do you see his heart? You can know Jesus as king, not just as a fact, but to know him the same way that John knows him. 
You can enjoy not just a mediocre life that goes on forever, but an abundant life in belonging to the one you were made for and to know true unity because it has the one true God at its center. And if you've already made that decision to belong to Jesus, I just want to invite you to consider what that means, that by belonging to him is belonging to a family, to one another, to reflect the unity of the Godhead, which invites the world to come and belong and brings glory to God. That's Jesus' heart. Um, Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you love the world so much that you sent your only son to die in our place. And Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to endure the, the ultimate limits of human sin and suffering on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to you. We could be reconciled to God. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come to li- you empower us to live for you and to transform us to be made more and more holy and more and more to look like Jesus. Thank you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage, including resources like our application questions. Thanks again for listening.